Sound check. Sound check. Sound check. Sound check. We haven't thought up a cold open yet. We haven't thought up. You know, we've never really done a musical cold open before. Well, I don't think anyone really wants to hear me sing, do they? I wouldn't mind hearing you sing. Really? Yeah. Freak out! Freak out! Like, like that? No. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Hello, sir. Hello! Yes. You actually have a good singing voice. You you tell me that. Even after we all went I out to karaoke need... that time, we did a Nerdonomy karaoke outing, and I embarrassed myself trying to sing. I think uh, if you had a little training, I think if you had a little training, you would be fine. I do. I genuinely mean that. I have no time for training. I know. I have no time. One day, folks, there will be a musical podcast, and it will be spectacular. Until I ruin it. <laughs> so, well you never know until then our listeners will just have to uh listen to my sultry voice speaking words instead yeah, of seeing them yeah it is getting hot in here but we're not taking off all of our clothes no 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 we're in shorts and t-shirts tonight in the nerd yeah, cave yeah. because it's like 90 degrees in california right now it's extremely comfortable yeah well eric loves the heat I i'm kind of indifferent it. to the heat <laughs> i i think it's a damn shame that we work in an air-conditioned building mm. i really do I, I I enjoy it. I think it's a, it's a dry heat, so it's comfortable. You can pretty much go out anywhere, you know, wearing whatever you want, because, you know, whatever you feel comfortable wearing. I think it's, I, I don't know, I like it. It's just, it's funny to me because it's pretty much desert weather. You know, we've, we've got, like, really cold 40 degree, nights. 50 degree mm-hmm. nights, and then 90 degree heat, and... It's a little bit of something for everybody. A little bit of something for everybody. Yay, global warming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know what's not bad for the environment? Listener feedback? You got it! This week in Listener Feedback. That was an excellent segue. Thank you, thank you. And we only, only have got one. Ironic, because we have a whole month <laughs> of episodes suggested from feedback, and we only have one for today. It's actually one that fell by the wayside, and I apologize, uh, because it just got lost in the mix. And uh, we're reading it. It's from about a month ago. Kevin writes... Temporal Rift Quality Control is the name of the subject. Message. Hey guys, I've been listening to you since uh, very near the beginning, and I have to say that you are far and away my favorite podcast ever. Well, thank you, Kevin. We appreciate that very much. I would like to make one correction and one suggestion. Correction. I don't know who came through the Temporal Rift, but it certainly wasn't Comrade Marx. (laughs) This is back, I think, when uh, either Roxy or Sarah was on. Um... Surely the real Marx would know the difference between the Communist Manifesto, a 40-page pamphlet that you can breeze through in 20 minutes, and Das Kapital, the couple thousand-page doorstopper that he referenced. Mea culpa, Kevin, mea culpa. I made a misnomer. <laughs> Thank you for catching that. As we always say, we, we welcome all feedback, and those uh, corrections keep us tighter as a podcast. See, if you hadn't apologized, I just would have gone with the excuse that we were pulling a, a Marx from a much later period in his life when he was suffering from dementia. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and he just yeah. he confused himself. We actually may have pulled the wrong Marx, to be honest. <laughs> we may have just gotten Groucho 
uh, who did a very good German accent. Ooh, you know, I, you know, that's true. That's true. Because yeah. I have seen the the secret nerd cave surveillance video of that recording. Yeah. By the way, I, I record everything that goes on in here. Just telling you now. Um, and I'm that... suddenly very, very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I did think that the horn rim glasses with the mustache and cigar didn't quite fit. Hmm. So hey, it could have been it could have been Groucho. We don't know. We don't. We could have been Harpo to be honest, because honestly, no one knows what he sounds like. Exactly. But he he could talk. You know, everyone just thinks of him as the little bike horn that he uses to talk with. And which I always thought was strange. That they called him Harpo. They should have called him like. Let's Horn-O. get back on track, shall we? Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he has a suggestion. Since Nerds on History has done a couple of shows dealing with conspiracy theories, might I suggest that people who find conspiracy theories interesting. Check out Carl Mamer's podcast, Conspiracy Skeptic, question mark. I don't know why I had to speak out the question mark. <laughs> uh, in particular, his October 2010 episode on Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Keep getting feedback about Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's a great examination of some of the more outlandish ideas on who the Ripper was and his motivations. Best of all, Mr. Mamer is a fellow Canadian. So, yay. Yay. Uh, I'll wrap this up by saying congratulations to Eric on the healthy birth of his daughter and keep up the great podcasting a he said a he said a and he said uh congratulations thank you kevin i appreciate it. well that. we send a big thank you to the great white north and let's move on shall we i think we shall yes we mentioned this last week this is uh the beginning of our month of feedback based episodes entirely coming from suggestions of our listeners that's correct and you know truth be told we have done many uh episodes outside of this month obviously that have been suggestions for, true from listeners. and we will continue to do this yeah. we're going to try it out for one month and then we'll have another month later on or we'll just you know we'll pepper them in you know we've gotten so many great suggestions that honestly there's too much to fit into one month we tried even doing tonight a wheel of history episode and it just couldn't happen because it's just there's too much information yeah so but what we do have a hundred percent for you is not just a amazing month full of episodes uh but also a catchy title for it as well uh because this month is may i suggest something really yeah would you expect anything different from me no i wouldn't i just kind of wish you may wish you had told me it's grammatically correct we we are a team here we, we have a committee for this kind of thing. You were supposed to motion it. You know, it has to be seconded, and you, you, you violated protocol. It was motioned. It was seconded. It may have been the voices that speak to me in my head, but I felt that they are valid partners considering they are a part of me. There you go. Anyway. This is actually all imaginary right now. We are ac- <laughs> you're actually in a padded cell in a straitjacket, and uh, due for your daily electroshock therapy, we are just, I'm just a figment of your imagination, as is this whole, our, all of our listeners. I find that comforting. Good. Yeah. Wow, that got very dark for a moment, it didn't did it? It did a little bit. We do that sometimes. All right. Tonight's episode is going to be a little bit fun. We got in the suggestion earlier on. In fact, this was from Dave, if I remember correctly, back in October. We received October 14th of the last year. Uh, he suggested we do an episode on foods that were named after people in history. Right. Or inspired kind of by events in history or what have you. And we've done quite a bit of research, and we've got some really interesting ones here. Ones that I had no idea until I really started this this research. But I think it's probably fair that we kick off with his suggestion, because he did make an example within that email. Uh, and that is, of course, Beef Wellington. Which actually, to be honest with you, there's so many exotic food items that are on this list. And some of them are ones that maybe you're familiar with. I'm not familiar with all of them, and I'm a foodie. Like, I, I watch a lot of Food Network. Yeah. And I do a lot of cooking. 
And some, like, uh, to be honest, I don't remember what beef wellington is, what the dish even entails. So essentially, it's a uh, cut of beef, but it has like a, a flaky crust that's been baked around it. So ah. think of like a really giant meat croissant. It's got that kind of flaky texture to it. That sounds delicious. It is. It's really, really good. And it's a, it's a little rare in the middle. Um, as it's supposed to be. As it's supposed to That's be. That's how meat is supposed to be cooked. Right. I know. We have the, a lot of folks who I'm sure will dispute that, my parents being one of them. Many a times when my father was cooking as a child and preparing hamburgers, I'm doing air quotes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he cooked them so through that they essentially just became little hockey pucks or pieces of, of coal. Well, for a man who literally yeah. has no sense of taste, I'm sure it was no, no, fine. No. He has a sense of taste. He has no ten- uh, no sense of smell. Which means his sense of taste is tremendously muted. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah. So, But what I think is, is interesting, though, is there's a theory out there, a very popular theory, after whom, in which this dish was named after. And the truth is, we don't know 100%. There's a couple different theories that are floating around. Pretty much, no matter how you paint it, though, uh, Arthur Wellesley... Uh, the first Duke of Wellington, okay, the very first, the original, still known the Duke, really. The duchy was created with this person, basically. Exactly. So, and keep in mind, he is the only Duke of Wellington to just simply be referred to as such, Duke of Wellington. He's he's known by that because he is so. There has been popular. no second Duke of Wellington or anything. Well, there is, proceeding. but and they're all referred to as a second or third or what have you. He's the only one who who is in, referred to it in the singular form, like he is as the if he Duke. were the only. He yeah. is the Duke of Wellington. Yeah. Even though the current Duke of Wellington is however many down line, I don't know what he is right now, but yeah. uh, he's still referred to as that. He is very popular. In fact, in 2002, they took a, a poll in England, and of 100 influential Britons, uh, he ended up as number 15. That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, fun fact for those who are not from the UK, um, the British peerage isn't always rock solid. Duchies, counties, baronies, all these things that would normally offer you titles of nobility. Those, well, baronies are kind of issued for the most part. They aren't necessarily hereditary, but the, all the other ones in the peerage, uh, and I'm also you know, forgetting Viscount and a bunch of other ones, they are only created by the monarch when there's a vacancy in that place. Hmm. That's why when Prince William married uh, Kate Middleton, they became the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. It was just, it was a... Uh, the region that did not have a duke available at the moment. And the monarch can create one at, at, at a whim. And they can also choose not to make another one. There have been earls that don't exist anymore. Kent, for example. Kent, for many, many years, had an earl that was represented in the peerage. And now it's a duke who uh, is represented in the peerage instead. So it's a fluctuating system. Yeah, I think it's, system. It's, it's currently Duke, what is it, Clark, I think, of Kent? Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that. I, you know, part of me does. <laughs> part of me does. Uh, let's move on, shall we? Yes. So why is the Duke of Wellington so highly regarded in the UK? I mean, there's a laundry list. I don't think I could get them all accurate even. But uh, he was extremely popular being the commander-in-chief of the military, which he held that post up until his death. I believe he was 89 He was or something, 87 around there. He was very advanced in age at the time of his death. Uh, very famous general, of course, f- famous for defeating Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo after his return from, from Alba and his eventual uh, re-exile to St. Helena. He was the one who was responsible for making that possible and being the, the brilliant tactician that he was, the kind of person who took time, really studied the battlefield, planned his tactics perfectly, instant celebrity. 
making materials, really. In, in, War in hero, basically. Time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And has uh, some very famous namesakes attributed to him besides this dish, if assuming it is really named after him. And the Boots Wellingtons, if you're in, from England, you're familiar with them. They were named after him, uh, as is Wellington, New Zealand. Oh, also okay. named after him, the second most populous city in, in, in all of New Zealand. Makes sense for a former British colony. So yeah. yeah. So it's it's logical to assume that this dish would would gain his namesake. It wasn't uncommon for dishes to be named after war heroes. What's interesting though is the only reference to beef Wellington in print as a recipe comes from 1966. There is no reference to it before that in print. So it's really hard to narrow down exactly when. Uh, the namesake was attached to the actual dish. Some people think that it wasn't directly named after him at all. Instead, it was named as part of a, uh, a civil ceremony, or a civic ceremony, I should say, going on in the city of Wellington in New Zealand. Interesting. And, and became associated with it from there. So... Gotcha. Yeah, nobody really knows 100%. Sure. Uh, nonetheless, though, it's delicious, and it talks about a really fascinating person from history and helps us to remember him... Uh, perhaps even those who may not be too familiar with him, like our, us here in, in America. You know, I, I will say one last thing, because I, I don't think I'm quite doing the dish uh, the justice that it that it deserves. Because in addition to the beef tenderloin, which again is covered in that kind of, uh, you know, pastry-like breading, uh, it's also uh, topped also with uh, with mushrooms. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely fantastic looking. Now, didn't you say, and I'm not sure if you were making just a, a pun at dinner, but you said that there's another connection that Wellington has with another very famous British person, right? Oh, no, that's very true. You know, thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Uh, Earl, the Earl Grey. Now, uh, in addition to, of course, serving in the military as a general and, and as the, the head of the army, he was also prime minister more than once. Uh, Which, for a duke, is extremely... Uh, rare for this late in British history, at least as far as my understanding of British politics go. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, um, our English listeners. But Yeah, I'm not sure. Because from my understanding of the of parliamentary politics, the prime minister is usually appointed from whoever is the majority leader of the House of Commons. Yeah. But I, I don't know if that's a 20th century trend or if that goes back further. But it seems like that was a trend for going into the 19th century. I think regardless of his title, considering how popular he was, you know, it makes sense that he would be a prime candidate. Yeah, if he was a war hero and he is as revered as uh, you say he is, it makes total sense that they would kind of forego custom in this case and just kind of go with them, you yeah, know? Exactly. But I do find it fascinating that the person who succeeded him as prime minister was the Earl Grey. And oh, of course, see, I had no idea that Earl, the Earl Grey was in fact prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> he was just... Guy loved his perfumed tea. You know? <laughs> but uh, anyone who watches Star Trek Next Generation, of course, knows uh, Earl Grey is a tea. Yes, Earl Hot. Grey. Hot. Hot. Uh, we are looking forward to the uh, the coming book, Fifty Shades of Earl Grey. <laughs> Very popular uh, with, with Starfleet captains. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, of course. Yeah, such a crap joke, but it's <laughs> it, there's a great meme of, I know, of Patrick Stewart reading it. I sent it to you. Yes, indeed. Well, I wish I could say I have something that impressive to follow up with, but I don't. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's fine. You can leave. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be going now. Here's a great one, and one that you may not think of right off the bat. Fettuccine Alfredo. Is it named after somebody? It's actually named after huh. somebody. Well, okay, the Alfredo part, I guess, kind of makes sense then. Right. right. The funny thing is that the recipe itself yeah. has existed in some form or another for hundreds of years. Hmm. It's a Roman dish. 
Oh, okay. Um, in fact, the, the original name of it, uh, and it goes all the way back to uh, the 15th century. Uh, and the original dish was pretty much just called macaroni uh, romaneschi. Is that the is that the Roman yeah terminology really that's the, well, that's the original Latin well not Latin no no uh, this is I mean Rome is in the region of Italy not is in the Roman oh, Empire I, see. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. thinking we're going back going back all way the way to the Romans <laughs> well I mean to be fair Italian is a vulgar Latin language so um, it's as close to the original Latin as possible so maybe but we'll see so the original name macaroni Romaneschi and I'm probably totally butchering the pronunciation of that. You know, and pretty much in all Italian food, macaroni is just the term for spaghetti. You know, it's just what it what it is, and not, not even spaghetti, just the noodle, just in pasta. Or the in pasta, yeah. It's just considered macaroni. So the dish translates to macaroni the Roman way, is what it means. It's very very simple dish. It is lots of blood. <laughs> traditionally eaten after a gladiatorial game. Yeah. Again, yeah. again, this is this is after that. This okay, is like I know, right I'm before sorry. the Renaissance. Took you know, place. I get in that mindset, and I stay there. I'm sorry. And the dish is, I mean, it is pretty much been the same way. The same ingredients have been around. It's fettuccine pasta, butter, and uh, Parmesan cheese, Parmesan Reggiano to be more specific. Hmm. Um, what has happened, though, is that the proportions of it have changed over time. So uh, the dish also kind of evolved into another dish, which was just uh, fettuccine al burro. It has the same spelling as burro does in Spanish, but totally different meaning. Burro in Italian means butter. Oh, so uh, fettuccine al, al, al burro just means fettuccine with butter. I imagine a lot of Italian tourists to Mexico have some rather unusual experiences at their local grocery. Sure, we'll go with that. Well, what happened is that uh, around the early 1900s, as there was lots of Americans starting to tour Italy, a man named Alfredo Di Lelio wanted to capitalize on uh, the dishes of just the Roman culture. Uh, by Roman culture, again, I mean the city in Italy, not the empire. We good with that? We good? We're good with that now. Cool. I'm good. I'm in good. a good place now. Awesome. Thank you. So his contribution was that he put in three times the amount of butter that, you're, that the normal <laughs> recipe uh, calls for. And just from a cooking perspective, the amount of butter you put in actually does make a big difference because that fat really mixes well with the starch. Especially, the thing is that the way you make the dish is really important. You take the butter and you put it in the bowl before you put the pasta in. And the pasta, fresh out of the pot, pretty much works with it, and you start to kind of stir it in, and you know, you, you toss it, and that, with the starches from the pasta, makes this nice sauce. The final piece of that, the traditional way of doing it, is you literally stick a wedge of Reggiano Parmesan cheese in the middle, and you just let it melt for a couple minutes. Toss around, then you take the rind out. Hmm. And that is, in fact, in of itself, that is the true, authentic method of Fettuccine Alfredo. It didn't really get jarred into the more processed manner that we're used to seeing until way, way later, huh. until decades later. So uh, that's how it came from. And he named it after his own variation just because he added more butter in. Did he die of a heart attack by chance? But wouldn't that be ironic <laughs> if he did? So there you have it. Well, speaking of pasta, I want to talk about graham crackers. <laughs> okay. The graham cracker. We've all grown up with them pretty much from, you know, age of two years plus. Uh, if you don't know what a graham cracker is, you know, you, you, you're sadly deficient because they are I remember delicious. they were handed out during rainy days in daycare with hot chocolate. Yeah, or, or juice or what have you. It's kind of a traditional when you're really little all the way up until you're, you know, 95 years old kind of treat. The graham cracker is fantastic. Everybody loves it. You know what it was originally designed for, however? Well, it's not super sweet, so I'm guessing maybe somebody who 
wants dessert but wants something just a little bit lighter? You would think so, but it's actually to deter young people from masturbating. What? I'm not kidding. I only wish I was. Well, that's a grapper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. I know I'm ruining your image of the graham cracker. But that's how it started back in New Jersey in 1829. The Presbyterian minister, Sylvester Graham, invented, Sylvester Graham. invented the graham cracker. Uh, it was all part of his Graham's diet, which he believed that by pretty much striking all flavor, all spices, including salt and pepper, uh, from your food, you were far less likely to engage in unwholesome practices. So I guess the logic is that if you're not indulging yourself with your diet, you're less likely to indulge yourself in other areas. Exactly. And the original graham cracker is nowhere near where it is today because you eat a graham cracker and they're oftentimes sweet. Cinnamon, usually. Cinnamon or honey, uh, chocolate, yeah. all sorts of different flavors that are out there, right? The original graham cracker was made out of graham flour, okay, so his own special combination of... of ground wheat and what have you to, to create his, his own flavorless flowers, flavorless as possible. And then mixing that with a rather unground, unbleached um, wheat flour and wheat bran. And it was hideous. It really was a cracker. You, you don't think of graham crackers being crackers today. They're more biscuits or kind of cookies, right? But they were awful. They were truly awful. And it's kind of ironic when you consider where the graham cracker is now, because what is the most famous dish that is prepared with graham crackers? S'mores, duh. S'mores, exactly. Yeah. Sitting around a campfire, you know, melting Hershey's chocolate and marshmallows in between two of these graham crackers seems like just it's the ultimate irony. I'm sure he's spinning in his grave right now. I was going to say, if Graham had lived to see that, he would have been horrified. <laughs> yeah. But he had, this, he had this idea. He had the idea that, you know, a strict, bland strictly vegetarian diet could deter sexual desires that he thought were destroying society. Uh, you know who else was also in line with his, with his thinking? Hmm. John Kellogg, the inventor of cornflakes and, of course, the Kellogg brand. So this I know a little bit about with the dawn of basically breakfast cereals, right? Kellogg came after, um, but basically the mindset was that the American diet was leading to a rise in obesity. Uh, and this goes back to the, the 19th century. And uh, a couple of early modern scientists were speculating it had to deal with a lack of fiber uh, in the diet. Which, I mean, ultimately, we still see that today. We do realize that actually a higher, higher fiber diet is better for you. It helps you lose weight, right? Well, the ways they thought they could do that was through more uh, grain, basically. Uh, so cornflakes, corn being a grain, was a way that he thought you can introduce fiber. Um, granola, as well as the the original forefather of it, granula, are all variant ways of trying to get that fiber in your diet. Yes, indeed. I, I think that uh, very noble causes, of course. But, but terribly executed at yeah, first. Just, the granula was harder as rocks. You had yeah. to literally soak it overnight to make it edible. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if you if you made your, your breakfast, you know, the night before, you were fine. But for everybody else, it just wasn't practical. Yeah. It needed a change. And so did graham crackers, because by 1898... Uh, graham crackers began being produced by the National Biscuit Company, and they started to change. They, of course, yeah, we know them as Nabisco. Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they took on a lot more flavor. You know, like I said, they were mixed up the formula so they were softer, a little chewier, a little more melting your mouth. 
then of course the flavor kind of came in with honey and what have you and by 1925 the the honey made graham cracker brand right so that's the most famous that exists today sure uh they began cranking them out like no one's business and that's uh that's still a staple of many people's diets today and children everywhere and children everywhere and uh, to think, it all started to try to prevent what was coined at the time as, uh, air quotes here again, folks, self-abuse was yeah. the phrase going around. Wow. Self-abuse. Well, indeed. Well, I'm going to knock out two uh, in a row because these are fairly short ones, but that's okay. Go for it. First of all, you ever been to Kentucky? No. No. We talked about it a lot recently. We have talked a little bit about Kentucky. Yeah. There is a hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, here's what I found out recently. Louisville is actually the wrong way of saying it. Is this kind of like New Orleans, where we always think we know we're saying it, but the local dialect pronounces it as New Orleans? Orleans. Yeah, Yeah. New Orleans, yeah. Well, it's the same way is true in Kentucky. It's not Louisville. I mean, yes, that's how it's spelled, and that's how it would technically be pronounced, but it's either two things. It's either Louisville, the E kind of just drops off, or Lowellville. 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 Okay. And this is how they know if you're an outsider or not. Kind of like Toronto, too. If you say Toronto, you are not from Toronto. If you say Toronto, Toronto, you're from Toronto. Exactly. So... In Lowellville, there is the Brown Hotel, famous place you can go to. And uh, this gentleman by the name of Fred K. Schmidt uh, invented what's called hot browns. Hmm. Yeah. And hot browns is uh, was meant to be a late night snack, you know, after a night of drinking. Uh, it's not uncommon at this point in time to have had a ham or egg dish after uh, drinking. Well, this guy... Absorb up some of that alcohol. Exactly. Yeah. So what hot brown was supposed to be was a variation of that. It's essentially, it's an open-faced turkey sandwich. So, you know, you toast the bread, get your turkey breast on there. It's carved straight from the from the turkey. A little tomato if you want. Uh, and then it's covered in a Mornay sauce. And a Mornay sauce, this is getting into a little more of my culinary knowledge. Mornay sauce is a bechamel sauce that's had Mornay cheese uh, worked in with it. So it's got like this, you know, very cheesy, fatty quality to it. And uh, then the final bit is it's broiled at the end until the sauce has a nice brown spots on on the top kind of like the crust you would get off like a pizza if you let the, oh, the okay. mozzarella sure cook long enough it's from the protein in the cheese so uh hot browns there you have it the one thing that happened more recently is uh you know the show throwdown with bobby flay no okay so on food network <laughs> bobby flay of course the iron chef you know oh that guy yeah yes yeah yeah he has a show where he goes around and he challenges people that he says basically it's kind of crass uh, he he says he could basically claims he can do make their dish better than than, than he can better than they can, and so they get into uh, a cooking competition. So that's why they call it a throwdown. And he lost, of course, his battle to the guys who currently work at the Hotel Brown, who have been using the recipe for eighty years, or in this case, ninety years since it was invented. But that was it had a kind of a, re- a resurgence, or a little bit of more spotlight from people who were foodists. Um, I want, do want to make one comment that I'm very glad that they didn't call it Hot Schmidt, <laughs> <laughs> because that could, what could have been with, with the, since the guy's last name was Schmidt or Hot Brown Schmidt. I think exactly. would have been absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad that they didn't name it after that. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just trace off. So that's number one. Number two is Carpaccio. 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 Wait now, this wait. Hold on. I've heard this before, but th- this is not the, the cold tomato soup, right? What no, that, that, that is gazpacho. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Totally different country. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Yeah, gazpacho comes from Spain. It is a vinegary tomato soup that is served cold. Also uh, featured in one of the greatest skits of British comedy history, in my opinion. Black Adder? No, no, no. Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf, okay. So 
total side note. I'm sorry, I have to go on a, on a tangent here. Because this is Nerds on History. Arnold Rimmer, who's one of the main characters who has since died and been brought back as a holographic representation, okay? He's plagued and tormented by this this moment in his in his history, in his past life. And it's uh, when he was invited to the officer's mess, because he's the lowest rank on the ship, or second to lowest rank on the ship. And he comes in, and he gets this, this bowl of gazpacho soup. Gazpacho. Gazpacho soup, thank you. And he demands, rather angrily, and in very titled fashion, that the waiter take it away and return it hot not realizing that the soup is meant to be served cold. And they brought the soup back to him, and he then sat there and ate his his piping hot uh, gazpacho soup. He was ridiculed for it, of course. Of course. Um, I'm sorry, I just, for our British listeners and those who are fans of Red Dwarf, you're welcome. Since you brought it up, you know why gazpacho is so important? No. Okay, well, so, well, the soup itself is no, I mean, it's a nice summer dish, right? You know, refreshing. The most important part of the gazpacho is actually the vinegar that gets added to it. It's not so much the the tomato hmm. soup. The reason why is the significance is the gazpacho they're referring to uh, is the vinegar. So the vinegar is believed to be the vinegar that was fed to Christ, that was offered to Christ when he was being crucified. You heard it, ladies and gentlemen. Brian has made a reference to Catholicism. Ding, 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 oh, one of two that will come later uh, on. <laughs> Trust me, I got a better one. Um... Yeah, so that's where that's where the significance of it comes from. Uh, there's no, I don't, there's, I don't think there's any historical evidence to substantiate that claim that it was in fact gazpacho vinegar that was given to Jesus uh, as he was dying. But um, but it sure made the dish popular. Uh, getting back to carpaccio, though. So do you know what car- carpaccio is? I, I clearly don't, because I just went off on like a four minute tangent about what okay. I thought it was. <laughs> uh, carpaccio is essentially it's it's it's. Uh, not to be mistaken for steak tartare. Steak tartare is a very different dish. Okay. But it's essentially the same idea. It's you take good quality meat uh, and you serve it raw, but you it's all on how you prepare it. You slice it very, very thin, hmm. basically. And uh, you kind of, it's served, served cold on a plate, obviously, because it's, it's raw. Um, sometimes if you really want to be sh- sure for food safety, you could quickly sear the, the outer edges of the skin, mm-hmm. but not long enough to let any of the, the inner meat cook and then just chill it, basically. If that's what you're worried about. Carpaccio can be beef, veal, venison, salmon, or tuna. In case you're wondering what types there there would be. Uh, it was named particularly after the beef variation. After uh, the, the Venetian painter Vittore Carpaccio. And the reason why is because when you have a good quality sirloin meat, what are the two colors you're going to see? Uh, red. Red, of course, right? Nice deep red. And I guess if you're searing the outside a light brown? White, right? Because good quality sirloin meat is marbled a little bit because it's got a little bit of fat. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. Right? Well, Carpaccio the painter was known for two overall hues being very noticeable in all of his paintings. I'm assuming that's red and white. Red and white, exactly. Red and white. Oh. So red and white was a very do- were the two dominating hues in almost all of his paintings. So because of that, because of that marbling, that color, in and around 1950, the dish was named Carpaccio. Basically. Interesting. And how long had uh, the actual Carpaccio been deceased at this point? He had been dead for about 400 years at this point. Oh, wow. Actually, even longer. He was born in 1460 and died in 1520. Well, that's good. So it wasn't so much that he was a huge fan of the dish that had been named after him and it was popular because Just of is, that. It resembled the art. That's all it was. Gotcha. Kind of cool that art gets to influence food every now and again. I don't know. I think it would kind of been more of an interesting backstory if uh, you know he had also been... Uh, maybe a cannibal. 
you know, or either that or just, you know, uh, died of botulism or something like that. I don't That's know. What, I so, like, it was his... It was his cannibalism that inspired his paintings to be exactly, red and white. Exactly. And then um, that inspired the dish. What a twisted tale. That sounds like a B-horror movie. <laughs> Carpaccio, the untold story. <laughs> that like was... his, his paintings are so brilliantly red. Oh, if you only knew. <laughs> it's using the blood as the paint. That's wow. actually going a little red violin. Yeah, a, a little, little bit, bit. A little bit there. Yeah. yeah. But if you've seen the red violin, it's a wonderful movie. Really messed up when you find out what the red and the red violin actually is supposed to be. But, you know. Spoilers, Brian. I haven't said it. <laughs> I just implied the crap out of it. Oh, okay. Uh, well, speaking of red, the Bing Cherry. The Bing Cherry. Well done. Yes. Not named after Chandler Bing, of course. Oh, really? I was hoping for that. No, sorry. This is a bit earlier, in fact, in history. Uh, it's a crossbred graph, uh, part of it being from a black Republican cherry uh, and one of the other local cherries uh, in the Oregon region in 1875. Uh, and this was uh, accredited, anyhow, to the horticulturist Seth Llewelling. Uh, and he had with him, uh, working on his on his plantation for over 30 years, uh, a very skilled individual by the name of Ah Bing. Uh, he was a uh, Chinese pioneer who had come to uh, the United States in 1855 and was a, a very, very skilled grafter. I mean, he was very well known in the area for what he was able to do and how he was able to care for uh, this orchard and, and help produce this now very famous cherry. It is a little, little sad though, when you kind of learn more as, as you go along, because in 1889, uh, he decided to go back to China to visit family. Uh, but due to restrictions that were being placed upon Chinese individuals at that time, uh, because of the Chinese exclusion act of 1882, he never was able to come back. Uh, and nobody knows exactly whether or not Llewelling was naming the cherry in honor of this trusted advisor and, and helper uh, there on the plantation, or if he was the one actually responsible for grafting it and getting the graft to stick and creating the cherry itself. We, we don't really know. Uh, but we do know that he spent 35 years of his life working and caring and taking care of these trees, and it is a really neat kind of tribute if you think about it you know it's 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 kind of fitting for him i think it's it's uh it's something that has helped his his legacy kind of carry on he didn't really have an opportunity to come back to america and be able to see his legacy carry on and yeah. and, and receive the honor himself of actually having it be named after him but yeah you know unfortunately that is the the nature of the way that we were um treating immigrants in our country at that time yes indeed <laughs> Much like yours uh, earlier, the, that was pretty much all I have on the Bing Cherry. It's a pretty quick little snippet, but it's a, an interesting one, and one I think should be remembered. Well, interestingly enough, the one I'm going to go into next, I think you're going to find pretty fantastic. Uh, but before we do that, I think we have to deal with our, our unwelcome visitor again. Oh, here it comes again. You know, I know it's trying to help us, but to be totally honest, it's uh, sometimes it just, it's just a long time. Whoa! You know what that is? It looks like a tank. No, no, that's a, that's a Sherman tank. I like, said it's a tank. You, but no, it's like the tank that Patton used. Well, at least it stopped. The table. Do you see who that is? General Patton, oh my god. Salute! Salute! Hello, boys! General George S. Patton here! General Patton, how are General, you? General, good to see you. Destroying our cave. Alright! You know you listen up. Now you listen up good. Because I got a message for you and all your listeners. I want to invite you to Proto Spiel. Uh, it's Spiel. Actually, Proto Spiel. Spiel? 
Are you German? No, 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 no. You no, better not be. No, 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 no. Because no, no. I got a tank. All right, all right. Proto spell, as it should be said. What is it exactly? It's a prototype board game meetup by Minicon. Where is that happening? Right here in Santa Clara, California, at the Game Castle on 1350 Coleman Avenue. When is it going to be happening? May 9th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. May 10th and 11th, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Make sure you're there. Make sure you say hi to Jeremy Commander, because he's the organizer. He's the commander, and you better salute him straight from Nerdonomy. Well, thank you, General. That's an important message. Didn't know you were into board games. Well, not a lot to do in a tank sometimes. I mean, you know, it's just rolling along, rolling over stuff, and sometimes I like to play you know, a little bit of Monopoly and all that. But that's not the point. The point is, you make sure you get your butt there. Ah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's going to take so long. Yeah. Well, um, Protospiel sounds like it's a really fun thing if you like board games. I mean, a lot of our listeners do. So as the general says, uh, May 9th to the 11th, May 9th is 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and 10th and the 11th is 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. at Game Castle. And you can meet some pretty incredible folks there. I mean, Yeah, no kidding. We've got some industry-leading designers and some of the most recognized and famous board games out there. Yeah, you've got Matt Lelock, the guy who designed Pandemic. Love that game. Great game. As well as Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Island. Uh, you've got Rob, uh, I'm, not get, I'm not sure if you get his, his name correctly, Rob Deviao who's done pretty much a couple of the more recent iterations of Risk, Risk Legacy and Risk uh, 2210 AD, to be more specific, and also the more recent version of Axis and Allies, the Pacific Theater version of it. So, Which, of course, General Patton, huge fan of. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, so really, really cool. And you've also got some big publishers who are going to be attending as well. So it's a great place to go to, to I think, to demo games as well as to just to have fun and play games. And uh, like you said, you can actually go to the board, the uh, website, boardgamebuilders.com for more information as well. Sounds fantastic. I love board games. I'm going to try to attend if I can. I might be able to attend that. We'll see. You should try to make that happen. I'm going to try yeah. to. Remember that fantastic topic I was going to talk about? <laughs> oh, yeah. Before the Sherman tank rolled into our nerd cave? Yes. Why don't we talk about what I think is probably my favorite breakfast dish next to like corned beef hash with eggs. Uh, eggs Benedict. Oh. Yes. So, just thinking about it. I gained I gained half a pound just thinking about it. Yeah. Like several major food items, uh, this was developed at the Waldorf Hotel. Oh, in addition to that, of course, Waldorf salad. There's been lots of dishes that have come out of the Waldorf uh, Astoria Hotel. So um, this one particularly dates back to 1894. And uh, it was the talk of the town in the New Yorker uh, in 1942, by the way. Supposedly it deals with the... It's, based, it's named after... The retired Wall Street stockbroker uh, Lemuel Benedict. There's actually two different accounts to where it came from, but he's the first account. And basically, the original dish was actually not Canadian bacon, as we're used to seeing today. Hmm. It was just regular bacon. He was, and <laughs> of all things, do you know what he was there looking for? Hmm. Cure for his hangover. <laughs> that is the, and this is, of course, what propagates the whole idea that if you have a hangover, you've had a long night of drinking, Eggs Benedict is. Uh, what you want. I guess it's supposedly the high fat content is supposed to help, you know, absorb the toxins that are still in your system. Did he also drink it with before. a Bloody Mary? Uh, it does not mention anything about a Bloody Mary. The original dish apparently was was just toast, bacon, 
of course, crispy bacon, poached eggs, and then just, and of course, the hollandaise sauce. That's the the biggest. That's the, the claim to fame, really, of the eggs Benedict. Absolutely, and of course, hollandaise sauce has existed prior to this. It's fantastic on uh, asparagus. In case you're wondering, this... I don't know if I've ever had it on asparagus. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. According to this, as the story goes, Oscar Tershi, who was the maitre d' of the time, was actually very impressed with the dish himself, and so he had it put on the breakfast and lunch menus, but he decided to make the final change. He's the guy who changed it from over to ham and the English muffin that we're now used to seeing, as opposed to just toast and bacon. Yeah, good choice. Yeah, right? It's uh, it's crazy. So here's the interesting thing. So the, that's the main claim, but the there's actually a refute to that claim, which is that prior to working at the, the Waldorf, uh, Tershke was also on the staff of this uh, restaurant named Delmonico's. Uh, where he had worked with a very well-rounded chef named Charles Ranhofer. And Ranhofer had developed the recipe around the same year and published it in a recipe book called The Epicurean. And it mentions Bill's affair from Delmonico's, uh, and it also mentions that there's a recipe for Eggs Benedict. If Ranhofer's tale is to be believed, his story is that uh, in his Delmonico years, there was a Captain Benedict, or a P- Captain Le Grand Benedict, and his wife, who were frequent diners, and that five generations of their family uh, had frequented and come in and uh, basically asking them as frequent diners, do they have any ideas for the menu? And that they had suggested the recipe and therefore named it after them. So that is the two different claims to it. I kind of like the hangover theory. Well, my, my personal favorite theory, because there is a third that I'm familiar with anyway, uh, and that is that it was actually Khan Noonien Singh who introduced uh, the Benedict. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> get out just get out of here that here's the thing i thought is really hilarious there is an actual dish named eggs benedict the 16th <laughs> which nobody really likes all that much and will never be canonized so the, the funny thing is so uh, of course eggs benedict is the master dish right and it's also made uh, tons of different uh variations of it there's you know eggs steinbeck eggs uh florentine which is spinach added to it of course so this is apparently a variation of it. Actually, the egg McMuffin is also a variant of... Get out. Get out. That is that is food heresy. I know How it is. How dare you? But I'm not kidding. In fact, if you think about it, it's got all the, the same ingredients, right? English muffin, kind of a poached-looking egg. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of an egg. Ham, right? And then instead of the hollandaise, they just put cheese on it. But it's all the same ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a very good substitute, but I'm just saying it's, it's a, technically a variant. That's what McDonald's claims is what they inspired the Egg McMuffin. So I uh, just nibble on that for a little bit. But um, what I think is hilarious about this version is this was a, apparently uh, created in honor of Benedict XVI's election to the papacy in 2005 by the food historian Mary Gunderson. And uh, because he was born in Germany, of course, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, this emphasizes German ingredients. So it's uh, the English muffin is replaced by rye bread. And sausage and sauerbraten are used instead of bacon. But it's still the poached eggs and the hollandaise sauce. Knowing the puns we do on this podcast, <laughs> the, there's an Eggs Benedict 16th is like gold for us. I wish we could say we made this up. We didn't. This is delivered to us from from above. Uh, I, w- I would prefer to have the Eggs Benedict Cumberbatch, where it looks exactly like Eggs Benedict, and you assume it's going to be Eggs Benedict, but then you, you bite down and you eat it, and it's something completely different. And it turns out it's actually waffles. Yeah, and you just start screaming. You just start screaming at the top of your life, WAFFLES! Yeah. 
you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but that's I'm a why Trekkie. But that's, I'm not an idiot. That's why we love you. I got to have some fun with it. I'm sorry. Um, for the record, I did try to do some extra digging into this. I cannot substantiate the claims of the Agatha Benedict the 16th actually existing. <laughs> uh, the uh, page that references this uh, through the, the Oracle of All Knowledge. Google. Uh, Wikipedia. Oh, um, shows up a dead link. And the place that I was able to find, again, by doing some other search searching, is a news site that looks really sketchy. So uh, so this may not even exist. This may not even be exist, but the sheer fact that someone had the idea to name a dish Eggs Benedict the 16th and substitute this is genius. It really is. Just in case this is actually some April Fool's joke that we are bringing to our listeners, I need you to make it real before this episode actually goes live. <laughs> So I'm gonna need you to go out and buy all the ingredients, and I'm gonna need you to post a picture on. Oh Twitter. yeah, if you ever have the sauerplatten and the have the rye bread, and hey, we'll get the uh, you can find days. You're making breakfast. Yes, it'd be very good. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. We're going to have some gears for our breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, done. well done. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, I think Eric and I are laughing because we know whose voice I'm actually imitating. Yes. This is a very, very inside joke. <laughs> but we got to, I got to do my German accents. So that's fun. There you have it. Eggs Benedict. The 16th. Eggs Benedict the 16th. Indeed. And uh, you know what? I'm going to bring this home with one more, if that's okay. Being that you are the resident foodie, by all means. Uh, we did have more that we wanted to talk about tonight, but we decided that just in the sake of time, we were going to cut it a little short. So I'll, I'll end with a quick one. Bananas Foster, which is amazing, by the way, if you haven't... Named after Jody Foster. No, not at all, actually. Oh. Not one bit. Uh, so this is actually coming from the New Orleans travel website, neworleansonline.com. So basically, uh, in the 1950s, New Orleans was a major port for shipping, and particularly one of the main imports they get were board bananas. Given that it's a Gulf Coast state, probably these would be coming from... Uh, Maybe the Caribbean. The or, Caribbean, or somewhere in South America. South America, yeah. They, 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 America. they produce a lot of bananas. I think it's, I want to say it's Colombia, but I actually could be, it could be Nicaragua. I think it is Nicaragua, actually, yeah. that produces uh, most of the world's bananas. Uh, and that's where Dole goes through a lot of now. So anyway, uh, case in point, a lot of these bananas are going through, and Owen Brennan, the owner of Brennan's Restaurant, challenged his chef to include bananas in a new dessert. So basically, Owen developed the, this method, this decadent dessert, and, you know, Bananas Foster is amazing. It's you, you essentially you fry a banana in like brown sugar <laughs> and butter on a uh, pan, and then you flambe it with with alcohol. And then when all that is said and done, and this is done by the way, done in front of the customer too. Oh, this of is course. all made in front at the table. And they take a big old scoop of uh, vanilla ice cream and put it on top. I think it comes with a bare aspirin as well, right? Why bare aspirin? Prevent the heart attack. Oh, oh, it's right. It's kind of like the after dinner mint. Wow. Way to, way to make a reference to another episode, dude. Sneak that guy in there. And so, therefore, that's how the, the dish is born. How it got the name was after um, Owen's friend, who is Richard Foster. Richard Foster was the, uh, well, the article here refers to him as a local civic and business leader. He was actually the city commissioner of uh, New Orleans. So, interestingly enough, Brennan's, to this day, is world famous for being the originator of the Bananas Foster. And according to this, they flambe 35,000 pounds of bananas for the famous dessert. Wow. 35,000 pounds. That is 17 and a half tons. That's a lot of bananas. That's a lot of bananas. That's enough potassium to make a giant bomb. Just, let, just putting it out there. <laughs> just saying. Potassium is explosive. It's a, if you mix 
potassium in water, it's a highly volatile reaction. It just goes crazy. It explodes. If you have that much potassium in your diet, you will probably explode. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably uh, suffer from spontaneous self-combustion. -com you can get potassium poisoning. It's possible. But I guarantee before that, you will not get a single leg cramp because <laughs> it is a powerful antioxidant. So, uh, like I said, nice little quick one to wrap it up with. So, there you have it. So, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Our very first of four episodes this month. Of listener suggestions. Listener suggestions. May I suggest a topic? Ha, ha, ha. Guess who thought that one up? Yeah. Uh, so, what are we doing next week? I believe the next topic we're going to be doing is uh, famous and powerful women. More specifically, women warriors is what we're, we're going for. In other words, women who kick ass. Women who kick ass, indeed. And not necessarily women who were warriors, because, of course, we can do Joan of Arc, and, uh, or we could talk about Queen Elizabeth I. But women who just were really, like, they defy the odds. They went above and beyond what, what was their station in life. You know, and that's where I think where we want to go with it. And then I think we're going to finish up the month actually with a two-parter, are we not? I do, yeah, which is the top 10 craziest monarchs. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Yeah, I'll the do it over and over again if you I, need me to. Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So I guess we'll tackle five an episode is, is how that's going to break down. Correct. And uh, you're going to get your, uh, your dose of loony monarchs coming your way, ladies and gentlemen. So... Uh, we also have some exciting other news going on in Nerdonomy right now. Oh? We are now finally, after almost two years, being featured in the Windows Store. So if you have a Windows phone uh, and you would like to listen to our show and you're using a different uh, podcasting app to listen to us, you can now listen natively uh, in the Windows App Store. Yeah. And, you know, normally we take the end of the show to reference all of our social media we think, you know, you guys kind of get it. If you look for us on Facebook and Twitter, you'll find us. I guarantee it. Let's take a second and talk about all the different ways you can listen to our podcast, right? We, we are, of course, on the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And Stitcher Radio is a big one. We're on, I think we're on pretty much every major podcast directory. Podbay is a great one. Uh, to website you can go to is also a wonderful iOS app. And speaking of iOS apps, of course, iTunes. Yeah. You download the podcast app and listen to us right there. Right. And if you happen to listen to us on iTunes... Please give us a review. Drop us a line. Let people know uh, what you think of the show because the more reviews we get, the more people see us organically and the bigger and better not only Nerds on History, but all of Nerdonomy can become. Absolutely, yeah. And so now, regardless of the platform you're on, you should be able to hear us out nonetheless. So, yeah. And, of course, the way we are able to do this podcast is through the support of our listeners, whether it is through our affiliates that we mentioned in our episodes or through flat-out donations. We we do appreciate it. So if you do have it in your heart and your wallet, please go to nerdonomy.com, click on that donate link at the top on the right, and help us out through PayPal. No amount is too big, no amount is too small, and uh, help us give you the ability to reach more and more people and keep doing these great podcasts that we get to deliver every week. And if you don't, then General George's Patton will roll over your house with a fleet of tanks. He will do it. I saw him do it last week. It's very messy. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you. As always, it's always oh, good. Uh, of course. Thank you, sir. Yes, and uh, until we meet next time, stay nerdy. Tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Goodbye! See, that was lovely. Oh, thank you. Goodbye, folks. <laughs>
Let freak say chic. Freak out! Still no? No.